Welcome to Photoshop Mechanics Podcast. In today's session, we will be covering the five different methods that I use to free distort smart objects. As you may or may not know, Photoshop, at least in this current version of Photoshop CS3, does not allow free distortion of smart objects. You can transform them, you can skew them, you can rotate them and scale them, but you can't free distort them. You can't create any kind of perspective. Your bounding box will always be a square, rectangle, parallelogram, or a rhombus. But there are ways around this. Transforming a layer is not the only distortion tool inside of Photoshop. It has other tools, and we can use those tools to get the effect we want. The first method I'm going to show you is called the rasterization method. Compared to the other methods that I have, it is the fastest method. It also produces the highest quality. It works in all versions of Photoshop as early as version 3. Its only downfall is its editability. This method is a little bit of a cheat. Unlike the other four methods that I've created, this method leaves you with a rasterized layer. It is not editable, but I include it in this list because of its importance. It should always be an option that is considered, especially because of its simplicity. Let's take a look at our sample file. The background layer contains several rectangular shapes. A single smart object layer is also in the file. We are going to distort this smart object layer so that it maps to one of the rectangular surfaces. The first thing we're going to do is rasterize the layer. The rasterize command is found in the layer drop-down menu. You can also right-click on the layer in the layer's palette. Once the layer is rasterized, enter transform mode. The shortcut is Command-T for Mac users, Control-T for PC users. Now that you're in transform mode, simply drag the corners to where they need to be. You will have to use those same modifiers while you're dragging the corners to move them individually. For Mac users, that's Command. For PC users, Control. And that's all there is to it. Commit the transform, you're done. Photoshop has created a perfect distortion. Notice that the perspective has also been accurately created. The objects that are closer to you appear larger than the objects that are farther away from you. The only problem is no smart object, no updatable content. This workflow demands that you build and edit your content in a separate document. Once you're done, you would bring a copy of your content into this document. So to make this process easier the next time around, you should create guidelines at all four corners of the target area. Now let's talk about the other four methods. They do use active, updatable smart objects. I call this next method the lens correction method. It should only be used on images that have one point perspective. In other words, two of the edges in the final distortion need to be parallel. If you go to entry 5 on the podcast website, you can download a set of actions that automates this method. Double-click the actions to load them into Photoshop. Use the flyout menu in the Actions palette to switch the palette into button mode. You will then want to scale the palette into a single column. Let's return to our original example. This time, we will be mapping the image to the bottom rectangle. This method works best if we know the exact position of the vanishing point. We can use the Rectangular Path tool to quickly find the vanishing point. Select the tool and use it to draw a rectangle anywhere on the canvas. 
Enter transform mode and use the same techniques that you used in the rasterization method to transform the four points to the four corners of the rectangle. Do not commit the transform. Remain in transform mode. At this point, all you need to do is drag handles without using any modifiers to cause the edges of the bounding box to intersect. Commit the transform and draw guidelines on the intersection point. This is your vanishing point. We can now see that the vanishing point lies directly above our target area. There's four actions to choose from when using the lens correction method. Each action corresponds to the direction of the vanishing point in relation to the image. Make sure you have the smart object selected and run the action. The layer is changed into a trapezoidal shape. Enter transform mode. Only one edge of the image matches the bounding box. Scale the image to align the matching edge to the target area. You will then want to move the opposite edge handle of the bounding box to the vanishing point. To move the handle freely, you will have to once again use the command control modifier. You should now have three edges that are aligned to the target area. The fourth edge does not match. To do that, we'll have to go inside the smart object. Double click on the smart object. A new document window opens up to reveal a nested smart object. Smart filters have been applied to the layer to create the trapezoidal shape. Position the new document so that you can see the parent document directly behind it. Enter transform mode. The smart filters are temporarily disabled. Find the edge that is not connected to the canvas. This is the edge we need to scale. The idea is to scale the edge to a larger or smaller size so that when we save the document, we can see live updates in the parent document behind us. A little trial and error, and we can bring our fourth edge into perfect alignment. Let's try that again on one of the other rectangular surfaces. Draw a new path, enter transform, align the bounding box to the corners of the target area, scale the path to create an intersection point, draw guides on that intersection point, select the smart object, run the action. Enter Transform, align a single edge to the target area, use a modifier to drag the opposite edge of the bounding box to the vanishing point, enter the smart object, enter Transform mode, and proceed to make small adjustments that can be updated back to the parent document to align the last edge. Immediately, we see a problem. This method requires that two edges of the target area be parallel. This example does not have two edges that are parallel. It uses two points of perspective, not one. So let's move on and talk about the three remaining methods that I use. I call this next method the custom warp method. It requires actions that can be downloaded from the podcast website, entry number five. Load the actions, select the smart object, and run part one. The action embeds a temporary layer inside the smart object, a 3x3 grid. It then disables the smart object layer by turning off its layer eyeball. A secondary grid layer is then created above the smart object. Enter transform mode. Transform the corners of the secondary grid layer to match the corners of the target area. Now select your smart object. Re-enable the layer by turning on the eyeball and enter transform mode. Choose a single corner and align it to the target area. 
Find the reference point location indicator in the center of the grid and move it to the corner that you aligned. This should allow you to rotate the image around the corner when dragging outside the bounding box area. Rotate the image to align a connecting edge. Find the opposite edge handle of the bounding box that scales the image along that edge. Scale it to bring a second corner into alignment. You can now use Command on the Mac, Control on the PC, to skew in the third corner. It's important that only one corner is skewed. You must use scaling and rotation only to get the first two corners. Now it's time to switch over to warp mode. Right click on the bounding box and choose warp. There are four different kinds of dragging procedures when in custom warp mode. You can drag corner points. You can also drag corner point handles. You can also drag something I like to call a safe mesh area. You can also drag an area that I like to call an unsafe mesh area. Sometimes it's a little hard to tell what you're dragging, so there are some simple rules. If you are trying to drag a corner point, click and hold on the point, drag it to an extreme correction. If the corner stays glued with the mouse, then you know that you have actually selected it correctly. If it falls behind the mouse in any way, then you have selected the mesh. You have not selected the actual corner point. If you have a hard time selecting the corner point, try this. Click and hold on the corner point without moving the mouse for approximately one second, then move it. I found that this somehow forces you to select the corner point. The same exact rules can apply when you're trying to select corner handles as well. The warping mesh has been divided into nine squares, a three by three grid. The center square is considered a safe area. You can drag inside that center square and none of your corner points or corner point handles will move. On the other hand, if you drag in any of the other squares, you will see shifting in the corner points and handles closest to it. We start by moving our fourth corner into alignment. We then tackle our edges one at a time. Choose an edge to start with. Drag its corner handles so that they overlap the edge. Shift the corner handles back and forth along the edge to bring the complete edge in alignment. The idea is to have only gray and white appear at the edge. You want to eliminate all traces of cyan and red. Continue around the object, tackling each side one at a time. Do not adjust the mesh or any points in the center until all the edges are matching exactly. Once you're done, locate the red and cyan bullets in the center of the image. Click and drag the cyan bullet to align to the red bullet. The image is still a little off, so you may have to do some nudging back and forth. Nudge the surrounding bullet points around, making sure that you only drag in the safe area. Do not cross over into the unsafe area. Once you're done, you can delete the temporary grid layer from the document. Then select the smart object layer, double click it to enter it, and delete the grid that's inside. This method creates a very accurate perspective effect. It also handles one-point and two-point perspective. Its downfall is that it takes a long time to set up, and you will get occasional artifacting. So you'll always want to zoom in and check your pixels, make sure you aren't getting any strange effects. The next method we'll cover I call the quadrant method. 
Once again, you'll need to download actions from the podcast website. The action contains a few different parts. Part 1 is divided into four different actions. Let's take a look at our destination area. This will help us to determine which action to use. Ask yourself which of these corners is farthest away from you in simulated perspective. Keep in mind that we will be rotating the image approximately 90 degrees to map to this rectangular surface. The leftmost corner of this image example is the one that's farthest away, but taking into account the rotation, we have to identify this corner as the bottom left corner of the target area. So we find the corresponding action, select our smart object, and run it. Similar to the previous method we covered, two grid layers are created, one inside of our smart object, one in the parent document. Select the smart object, move it to align the red corner to the target area. Enter transform mode and rotate it to align an adjacent edge. Find the bounding box side handle that represents the remaining corner of the aligned edge and scale it into position. Ignore the yellow corner for now. That is the last corner we will be working on. Holding down the modifiers Command and Option on a Mac, Control and Alt on a PC, you can skew the third corner into position without the other two corners moving. It's important to only skew one corner. You cannot use double skewing when you're using this method. Right-click on the bounding box to enter Warp Mode. Switch the Warp Mode to use the Arch preset. Change the Bend value to 0. Hover the mouse over the letter V in the Options bar at the top of the screen to change the cursor into a scrubber icon. Click and drag on the V to scrub one of the remaining edges into alignment. Now hover over the H and scrub that value to bring the last edge into alignment. For the most part, if you follow these rules, you can quickly map all four corners to the target area, but occasionally you may see some shifting when you're doing your final warp adjustments. In this example, the corner that we skewed, the third corner, has shifted a little bit out of its place. If this happens, you need to return to transform mode and re-skew the corner. After the corner is re-skewed back into place, go back to warp mode and make some more adjustments. You may have to go back and forth, hopefully not too many times, to get the image to perfectly match. Once you're finished, commit the transform. Now we need to return to the layers palette and enable our exterior guide layer. Turn on its eyeball, select the layer, enter transform mode, and transform the corners of the bounding box to the target area. Notice that the colored squares are all approximately the same size. When we used warp on our last corner to align it, it kind of used squeezing and squishing methods to get everything to line up. It did not create actual perspective. Things that are closer to us should appear larger than the things that are farther away from us. If we look at the exterior guide layer that we just transformed, it does display accurate perspective. And we will use this grid as a guide to fix the smart object. Double-click the smart object to enter it. Our original content has been nested into an additional smart object. Zoom this document to a really small size so that we're able to see the parent document directly behind it. Pull up the Actions palette and go to Part 2. Part 2 has been divided into several actions. 
you can use these actions to create small adjustments in the perspective distortion in the parent document. There are two categories, horizontal and vertical. Make sure that you keep the nested minimized document selected at all times during this step. The distortions are created by Spherize smart filters. The idea is to click on the buttons one at a time and observe the results. You're trying to get both grids to align in the parent document. Using a negative Spherize does a pretty good job at mimicking distortion, but it's not an exact match. So, to minimize any bowing effects that may appear on your edges, it's best to use less than more when trying to align these grids. Once you're happy with the results, you can enter the nested smart object and delete the grid layer. Close and save both of the smart objects, returning to the parent document. Delete the exterior grid layer and return the smart object's opacity back to 100%. Though it seems complex at first, this is the method that I use the most. It has a decent quality and minimal artifacting. The distortion may not be exact, but it's enough to fool the human eye. The last method I'd like to show you requires the extended version of Photoshop CS3. I call it the Vanishing Point method. The Vanishing Point filter only works in RGB mode. Make sure you have a composite layer selected, and then run the Vanishing Point filter. Use the Create Plane tool to mark off the four corners of the target area. But before you commit the filter, use the flyout menu in the palette to choose Return 3D Layer to Photoshop. A new layer is created in the document. The layer has a texture. For our purposes, textures react pretty much the same way as smart objects do. You can double-click on them and they open up as a separate document. The texture has been labeled Temp0. Let's open it up and see what we got. Go ahead and double-click on the word Temp0. The texture opens up as a vertical document. Return to the parent document and double-click on the smart object. Open that also in a window. Line up the two windows next to each other. Go to your history palette and make sure you have the smart object document selected. Drag the last state in the history palette onto the canvas of your texture document. This is a quick method for cloning all the information in the smart object into your texture. Because Photoshop interpreted our texture as a vertical document, we will now have to rotate the canvas to have our texture update properly. Let's close and save this texture and take a look at our final result. The Vanishing Point filter sometimes gives you unpredictable results. Sometimes it's dead on. Sometimes it's just a quick correction to the field of view. This is one of those examples. Double-click on the layer icon to edit the 3D settings. Click on the small camera icon in the options bar. Click the blue down arrow to access the number fields. Hover the mouse over the field of view numbers. Hold down the command key if you're on the Mac control key on the PC to switch over to the scrubber icon. You can now scrub the field of view until the image aligns perfectly with the target area. You can also hold down the Option key or Alt key for finer increments of movement. You can now delete the original smart object. If you need to edit your updatable content, simply double-click on the texture. Its behavior is virtually identical to a smart object. Let's try this technique again on a different rectangular surface. Create a grid in the Vanishing Point filter and use Return 3D Layer to Photoshop. 
In our last example, Photoshop misinterpreted the field of view. In this example, Photoshop flipped the shape and moved it to the other side of the canvas. We could try and fix this by entering 3D transform and adjusting the numbers or by dragging on the canvas. But in cases like these where it's not a simple field of view adjustment, I strongly recommend that you abandon this procedure and try to use one of the other techniques for distorting smart objects. It is possible to match the target area by using the 3D transform tools, but I think you'll find it's more trouble than it's worth. Now that we have a good understanding of these five different techniques, let's talk about quality and ways to minimize artifacting. Occasionally, you will get rippling effects running through your smart object. This is almost always because your smart object's interior canvas size is too large in comparison to the placement size. The best way to check for this is to open all nested smart objects, line them up across the screen, set them to the same view percentage, and compare them visually. Do not use Transform Smart Object to check for placement percentage. Unlike Photoshop CS2, CS3 now uses inches instead of pixels to determine those percentage numbers. So if you're using different resolutions, your percentages will not accurately tell you how large or how small your smart object is being reinterpolated. Warping will also throw off those numbers. So it's best just to open up all the smart objects and line them up. This example shows all the documents being viewed at 33% magnification. Each child object is slightly larger than its parent placement object, just large enough to preserve quality, but not so large as to cause artifacting. To minimize artifacting, you should be trying to have your smart object placements at around 70 to 90% in size, although you can sometimes go as low as 50%. You will encounter this kind of artifacting mostly in the custom warp method, but it can happen anytime that you use a smart object, so keep an eye out for it. Another thing to keep in mind when determining reductions is perspective distortion and how it's scaling different parts of the image. Though smart objects are more susceptible to scaling artifacts, raster layers still encounter this problem. This example shows how perspective distortion reduces the top edge of the image a lot more than the bottom edge of the image. Notice also that the image is compressed vertically a lot more than it is horizontally. If you're scaling raster layers and you're still in transform mode and you have all your corners lined up, a quick way to improve quality is to then scale the image larger to a size that's closer to its original untransformed state. You can then commit the transform, re-enter transform, and shrink it down from center to the size it needs to be. When you're dealing with any kind of scaling, be it a raster layer or a smart object, you need to make sure that you have your interpolation options set up correctly. You can set this up in your general preferences dialog. You always want to be using one of the bicubic modes. Photoshop will use this setting whenever you transform a layer. Photoshop will use this setting when you transform a smart object. Photoshop will also use this setting anytime you change the contents of a smart object and cause it to update. Now the image size dialog allows you to override these settings, but it only overrides these settings when dealing with raster layers. If you have smart objects in your file, 
and you use image size, it will not use the interpolation settings you use in image size for smart objects. It will use what you set in the general preferences. So keep that in mind. It's very important how you set these up. If you're working on illustrations or UI design, you might be using bilinear mode, and that has great results. But as soon as you get to the point where you're updating that information into a smart object that's being warped or into a smart object that uses smart filters, you should probably be switching over to bicubic mode. For example, the quadrant method uses spherize smart filters to create perspective. If you use distortion smart filters in bilinear mode, there's a good chance that Photoshop will start cutting out blocks or columns or rows of information out of your image. Another important thing to know about when updating smart objects is how changes to the interior document size affects the exterior placement in the parent file. This example shows what happens when we double the resolution of a smart object. When we save the smart object and it updates into the parent file, there's no visible change in its size. Let's back up in the history palette and try that again, but this time we'll use inches instead of resolution to double the size. If we change it from 10 to 20, we can save the file, it updates into the parent document, but this time it grows by 200%. So, changing the resolution will preserve the smart object size in the parent document, but changing the inch size will not preserve the size in the parent document. Unfortunately, that rule is not always true. If you use any of the preset warps on a smart object, that rule is reversed. Simply put, if you need to alter sizes of your nested smart objects to get higher qualities, and you're having problems figuring out why your smart object is changing in size in the parent document, try using the other value in the image size dialog. Sometimes you can get a higher quality by altering the canvas size. Changes to the interior canvas size of a smart object almost always means changes to the exterior placement of that smart object. One example of where this could have a big impact is the lens correction method. Locate the side of the image that is not touching the canvas border. You can extend or shorten this side of the canvas by using canvas size. The smart filters will recalculate the distortion correctly. You would then repeat the procedure for distorting that smart object into the target area. If your vanishing point is pretty far away from the target area, you will probably want to extend the canvas. It very well could give you a higher quality. Of course, this also means a much larger file size because you have a much larger canvas embedded in your smart object, which is usually why I preserve this method for when the vanishing point is close to the target area. When it's pretty far away from the target area, I tend to use the quadrant technique. One last thing I'd like to mention about smart objects in general is edge artifacting. It occurs often in the lens correction method, but it can happen anytime you use a smart object. Basically, the edges of the image box starts to become aliased and blocky or ratty looking. This can usually be fixed by increasing the size of not only the parent document, but all nested smart objects. In other words, creating higher resolution for everything, so the effect is minimized. So, as you can see, it's not easy to free distort a smart object to an area, but it is possible. So, do some thinking up front and ask yourself, is it easier to just free distort a rasterized layer, or 
do I need fully layered editable smart objects that I can easily update? Either way, good luck. You've been listening to Photoshop Mechanics with Greg Apodaca. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it.